Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 172nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that announced our preview cards for Magic 2025 12 days before Alpha ever hit the streets. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. Are you enjoying your allergy season here? You know what? I have not been hit really very hard with allergies the last couple of years, uh, which is lovely for me because it used to be pretty terrible. Uh, yeah, that is sounds lovely. I have been crushed the last week, uh, and it is only by virtue of shutting all the doors in my house and trying to limit my time outside that I am not sneezing right now it has been bad yeah when i was a child i had no allergies i didn't really get them until mid early mid 20s and now it seems to be fading which is very strange must be nice (laughs) must be nice (laughs) we live above a giant forest like literally out my window is like 80 hectares of forest so there's plenty of opportunity for pollen to float up into our window (laughs) And I did feel a little like twitchy the other day, but not bad, not bad. Yeah, we got we got this new house and it's got a lot of lawn, which is great. But like the one day I was standing looking out our back window, it, uh, it's like we have like almost an acre and then it, there's a park that adjoins the lot. So it really just goes on forever. But I was just standing at the window and then like the breeze blew and like I saw the grass ripple. But like then I saw like pollen and stuff floating through the air and I'm like had this like frozen moment where I'm like, Oh my God, there are so many allergens outside my window right now. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> like like I used to live much. More... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like being in the happening. Like I'm like, uh, I came from the, well, a little, a little more city where there wasn't as much green and plant life immediately around my house, but I'm just like, now I'm feeling it. Uh, um, our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. I believe our sponsor also has a 10% off everything sale going on right now. Um, Jeez. want to check that out i think last week was 15 percent off foils or something there's been several good sales with cool stuff lately are we allowed to use the coupon too <laughs> we are indeed in fact i'm sure they encourage it <laughs> yeah right uh so this week we have a show in four parts segment one is our top movers we'll talk about the cards that have moved it the most in price this week and there's quite a few with a variety of reasons uh segment two is our cards to watch james and i will talk about the cards we think have a positive outlook and there's going to be a little bit of a squabble this week which is uncommon for us segment three is our metagame week in review this week we will be looking at the modern challenge that occurred uh, a couple days ago uh all sorts of interesting modern stuff over there that was the breakout of hogak and finally segment four our topic of the week we are going to discuss a question that sam black brought up 
a couple days ago on Twitter, he asked where the best place to invest is if you think the new Magic Netflix show is going to be a breakout. Uh, and I think that there's going to be some great conversation there. So let's get the week started with well, uh, segment. Oh, well, hold on. Before we go into segment one, did you see these new War of the Spark previews? Oh, uh, you there's, mean there, Magic 2020? Oh, is that what it is? It's hard <laughs> to tell because War of the Spark just came out a few weeks ago. And Magic Modern Horizons isn't even out yet. And yet we got these three Chandras, Uncommon, Rare, and Mythic. And I could have sworn. Uh, I'm just getting confused by all the action. Um, pretty interesting looking cards, actually. Um, first off, apparently Planeswalkers at differing rarities is not a thing of the past or unique to War of the Spark. Chandra no- Novice Pyromancer was announced. That's an M20 Uncommon. Three and a red for five loyalty. Plus one. Elementals you control get plus two, plus zero until end of turn. I'm sure people that like to build casual elemental decks will be into that. Minus one. Add two red. So effectively this card only costs you two the turn you play it. And minus two. Chandra Novice Pyromancer deals two damage to any target. They were all curious. I thought I had a couple thoughts. We see that Static abilities are still around, but not permanent, um, because what is it? The mythic version has the semi-static ability of can't be countered, but the other two don't. Um, and you also, uh, I also thought the the rare one was fascinating. That one seemed like it had some some utility, but across the board, curious cards. Uh, I don't know if I love the idea of inundating a set with one planeswalker. That just feels exhausting. Um, well, I mean, this, this is going to get better and better. We're, we're going to talk about the Netflix show later in the show, which we recorded last week. So it's a little bit odd. But the, you know, this is all leaning into, I think, that they used Chandra to advertise the Netflix show and the teaser, which is art from uh, an old burn spell from Standard. I think it was from Origins. And my bet is that the show is going to center around Chandra as well, or that at least she'll be one of the main characters. And I can't wait till the you know, right-wing nut jobs are going crazy pants because Chandra's making out with Nissan on, on Netflix. Oh, do you think... <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess I guess that it makes sense that they are not going to try and do every single set like this, and their plan is they're using Magic 2020 and the triple Chandra as a tie-in for the Netflix show. Or like a build-up toward it. Like, they're, they're yeah. basically saying, this is a more important character than you thought. It, and it kind of makes me wonder if the Netflix show is a lot closer to release than we realized. Um, I have not followed closely the discussions that have come from uh, that initial announcement. So I don't know if we have a really good feel for that. But Netflix does spring stuff on people, kind of. Um, so it's like maybe they're trying, maybe that's going to come out later this summer or even early next year. And there's all the Chandra's available at that time rather than the like three years from now that it feels I, like it could be. I think they knew about it at least a year ago because there was some interview where one of the Wizards employees uh, basically equivocated or like basically misdirected the interviewer as to what magic strategy was with that kind of a, like the potentiality of there being um, a Netflix type show or a movie or whatever. And it was pretty clear it was already in production then. So I would say we'll probably see it a year from now. 
um, maybe a year and a half. Um, but could be sooner. We'll, I guess we'll see. Really, these kind of things depend on how much money you throw at it, how hard and how fast, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if, the, if the animation team and everybody is lined up and like had slots for you in the schedule and they it was in their, everybody's best interest to get moving, then maybe it's you know, already you know, nearing completion. Well, I guess we'll see. However, speaking of Chandra, Acolyte of Flame is the rare coming out in Magic 2020. One double red, four loyalty, two zero abilities. One puts a loyalty counter on each red planeswalker you control. Notably, that would boost Nicol Bola's Dragon God, um, which could be relevant in standard if you're running some kind of wacky Grixis planeswalkers thing with shirtless pirate Jace, and you're trying to do the combo with Nicol Bolas to take the game. Um, her other zero gives you two one one red elemental creature tokens. They gain haste, and you sack them at the end at the of the end step. So she doesn't get blockers, but she can get two uh, damage worth of attack power in. And if you've got sack effects, then you could attack and then sack, which is pretty nice given that it's a zero. Um, minus two, easily the most interesting. You may cast target instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it. So if it if left unperturbed, she can do a little bit of a double snapcaster impression where you're getting to recast two of your instants. Which is big game for red decks that are typically really searching for the last couple points of damage um, and like one or two last spells. So having, giving that kind of like, oh, you get to recast the best red, you know, the best burn spell you cast this game. That's that's pretty powerful. One of the questions I have is whether a spell centric Jund type build in modern might want this because it's instant or sorcery. It doesn't cast them for free, which is I made the mistake uh, on Twitter calling it out that it could cast the suspend cards, but it doesn't because it doesn't pay the cost for you. Um, so mm. I don't think that works, but you could still do something in Jund like Lightning Bolt Thoughtseize over the course of two turns. Or yeah you know, uh, Assassin's Trophy Thoughtseize or Assassin's Trophy Lightning Bolt, all of which sounds pretty good if if those spells are killing the things that would pressure Chandra. That's, I mean, it fits right into John's value plan, right? Like, uh, just keep the stream of threats up. So, um, you know, and, and, you know, just nothing but two for one. So the question really is just, that's very potent. And the question would be, is it more potent than the other options? Yeah. I mean, so, con- considering that's occupying the same mana space, at, I think, as uh, Lillian of the Veil, right? So yeah. that's <laughs> that's a tough competition, and, tough, tough slot. And double red, double black isn't necessarily where you want to be, depending on your mana configuration. Right. So the other one is the Mythic, Chandra Awakened Inferno. Four double red, so that makes it unlikely for modern, although I'm sure uh, Saffron will run it on stream one day. The spell can't be countered, comes in with six loyalty, and it's plus two puts it at eight right away. If you want your opponents to get an emblem that says, at the beginning of your upkeep, this emblem deals one damage to you. This alone means it's probably strong and standard, and where there's already a Jeskai Super Friends build that this might slot into. Could be a Grixis one as well, again, with uh, other Chandras, Jaces, and or Nicol Bolas. Um, and the fact that it gives the emblem to each opponent means it's definitely got EDH chops. Like, I've got Bolas built for EDH. I would run this in that deck. Yeah, yeah, seems very playable there. And then the other two abilities are shoe wins to make this a standard staple. I think this is on the level of Liliana Dreadhorde General, really. 
Minus three deals three damage to each non-elemental creature. So if you get a bunch of good elementals in Core 2020, which seems likely given the elemental theme for her cards, then maybe that's a really nasty one-sided anger of the gods. Uh, and then minus X deals X damage to any creature or planeswalker. And if a permanent dealt damage this way would die, you exile it. Mm-hmm. Very strong defensive abilities. Someone was saying that card looked... One of the pros was saying that looked absurd for standard. And I don't remember who it was. But that emblem alone in standard could be very potent. Like you, This comes down on six, goes up to eight. Eight. And then puts them on a clock. I mean, it's not a fast clock. But it's definitely a clock. Uh, and you can give them. So I guess I didn't thought about this. You give them multiple emblems too, right? Yep. So they stack. Every that, time you keep her alive, you just keep giving them emblems. That seems pretty obnoxious. Like you're taking one one damage a turn isn't too bad. But if you don't kill an eight loyalty planeswalker, the second turn you're getting... Two, you're getting shocked every upkeep. That's a significant amount of damage, especially against a deck with red. And they take the damage on their upkeep. So yeah. you can you can increase her loyalty and then pass the turn, and they're definitely taking the damage equal to the emblems. Mm-hmm. Fun-looking card. Fun-looking cards. I don't love Chandra as a character, but uh, clearly they're giving players a lot of different ways to make use of her. Yeah, well, a little crazy that we're getting... The spoiler. I, I I knew the spoiler season was going to be tight, but I thought it was going to be like ten days from now. But apparently, it officially starts this Monday. <laughs> Saffron was tweeting that he got his. He took a look at his spoiler card today and said it was just ridiculous. Um, mm-hmm. We have heard that twenty twenty is going to be a juice set, but I also think that the set is going to, you know, run into many of the same issues as Modern Horizons one in the sense that it's summertime and it's a totally stacked product mix right now. And so the I expect the set to be underprinted um, versus most other standard sets. So anything that's good out of this set, I think you tar- you, you're going to want to target it earlier than you normally would. Yeah, yeah. Mythic, Mythic Horizons is going to be in a real spot because of the timing of Core 2020. Um, or Core 2020 is going to get no one is going to buy it outside of pre-release weekend because they're too interested in Modern Horizons. Uh, either way, something's getting squeezed real hard here. Well, I mean, I think I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a bit of both, right? They both, because, they both will have reduced sales because they're because of each other. That's just that makes sense. Assuming that they're of equal appeal to the player base, right? But if you have like if 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 it turns out twenty twenty is kind of a dud, then you re- that runs into the to where you could have 2020 just get crushed because everyone's like, oh, this set's not interesting. I'd rather play Modern Horizons. Um, or at the flip side, if Horizon, if M2020 is absolutely stacked, maybe people don't stop playing Horizons because 2020 is really good. And then Horizons goes even shorter sale than people expected. Well, I'm definitely expecting to see some strong reprints, at least like three to five modern relevant reprints in this set. So I'm curious, where, you know, at what point we are going to see things like enemy fetch lands or surgical extractions or whatever. I was just going to say my off the wall guess is uh, is fetches. Who knows? I mean, it's all just conjecture. I don't have any information to back up any of it. But and you're not going to be able to plan around it. But I would definitely want to have if you have a list of, say, your 
10 or 15 modern cards that are worth a lot of money that could be printed into a core set organized by likelihood of that occurring like for instance surgical extraction needs a reprint but it's phyrexian mana so it's definitely weird to throw in there um Mm -hmm. unless they create some fresh phyrexian mana cards which seems very unlikely in a core set so you can work backwards from with that kind of logic and get to things like you know last year we got crucible of worlds and that has paid off very handsomely especially on foils within just a year so if this is even let is more juiced than core set last year and has more staples and is a low print run that all sets up great mtg finance sure does james all right so uh, let's finally get to segment one here and start <laughs> start talking about our uh, top movers this week I try to plow through a bunch of them uh vengevine original copies out of uh rise of the eldrazi making a move from uh 18 to 35 or so and i think you can still i still saw copies lying around on the internet uh in the 20 to 25 dollar range today but i think they are going to post up in the 30 to 40 leaning towards 40 very shortly because most of the hodak uh hogak decks uh seem to be running uh the full complement of four i would say probably about 70 percent of the builds some of the the players running that deck don't seem convinced and are running zero. Um, but I think things are tipping in the direction of it being a Vengevine world shortly. Vengevine looks good. Uh, I, I sold mine and I would be selling yours if you have any. Um, I mean, obviously the Hogarth deck did really well at the outset here, but it also... Um, was pretty much unknown. Like, no one came in prepared for that, really. Uh, and that's going to change real hard in the ensuing events. Um, and Vengevine also just got that reprint in UMA. So that's not a deal breaker, but it definitely doesn't help, um, especially as a deck gets pushed back hard from the metagame. So uh, I'd be happy to sell here, I think. Likewise, we have Altar of Dementia, the original printing from Tempest, which is not available in foil. The non-foils in that old border going from 10 or 12 to over 20. Um, I don't think the rest of the editions followed that hard, did they? Uh, They were all, they all changed. Um, There are like three copies of this card. Because there's a Tempest, there's this one, and there's a Conspiracy one. So they all jumped in some capacity. That's the important takeaway here. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, it's getting a reprint right here this weekend in Modern Horizon. So the non-foils, at least, are are going to be under significant reverse price pressure back down into like probably the $5 to $10 range. However, if Hogak does well in the format, posts up in Tier 1, and say 6 to 12 months from now, it's still there and hasn't been, nothing's been banned and the deck's still doing well, then Alter will take off. For sure. It'll end up being a fifteen or twenty dollar card instead of a five to ten dollar card. Right. And and the Tempest copies cleared out and and saw kind of a, a jump in price there. And but the rest of the copies are at a normal price for the moment. I will tell you that I think Alter Dementia is a is a huge combo piece. And really that's the the problem. It's not Hogak, it's Alter. Alter's going to remain an engine even if, for instance, Hogak got banned. Uh, but I think that this is definitely going to be a sudden wake up call for uh, well, you know, Wizards doesn't want to look at pre 
the, the they don't want to be in a situation where the before the cards are even hit the street, they're wondering if Alter Dementia was a mistake. So they're definitely going to give it room to breathe because the whole point of this was to give the format some new tools. But I will tell you, Alter Dementia is no joke. And I wouldn't surprise me if a year down the road that they revisited this card and said, you know what, we tried it, but it just got out of hand. Uh, but there's a lot of, but so, I mean, what, really what that tells me is you've got a lot of time for this card to go hog wild because they're really not going to want to get rid of it uh, for at least a year. Well, it's funny too, because like when KCI came into prominence on the back of some fresh cards rearing their head, they eventually could just say, okay, we're banning KCI. We haven't printed it any time lately, so nobody's going to be too, too upset about it. <coughs> but in this case... The, the core of this this deck is Hogak plus Alter, and they're both like just coming out on Friday. So you're right; they're gonna they're gonna give it some time for sure, unless it starts putting up absolutely ridiculous ridiculous results in the next three months. One of the things I think is interesting is that they didn't seem to think it was important in Modern Horizons to give us some graveyard hate, and even before this deck was on the radar, Dredge was already doing ex- exceedingly well. And Phoenix makes good use of the graveyard as well. So I thought for sure we were going to get, you know, like collector oof type card that just emptied a graveyard when it came into play. Like some kind of mid-range utility creature, some fair creature that would overbalance um, the main deck options against graveyards. I, too, am surprised that we didn't see more graveyard hate in Horizons. In fact, if you've been listening to the cast for a while, you'll know that I mentioned that several times in the lead up to the set that I expected some additional tools for those types of hate cards um, or or to replace those hate cards. And that would take off some pressure from surgical extraction and the like. But we really got nothing in that vein. So I don't know if they just figure. I don't know. Maybe the development time was too long, or the lead time was too long. They couldn't get those types of cards in once before, you know, after they saw a surgical extraction jump. I don't know, but uh, it is real expensive if you want to battle the graveyard. And it's I'm I'm beginning to wonder if some of these graveyard decks are going to thrive because players are in a situation where they don't want to spend a fortune on good graveyard heat. Uh, and then those those graveyard decks will succeed because players aren't showing up with enough copies in their sideboard, or they're showing up with the wrong ones. But be curious. I mean, it certainly it certainly seems to support rest in peace. The financial angle, anyway, supports rest in peace over surgical extraction. Not the least reason of which is that surgical surgical extraction is less effective sure. against Hogak. Like getting getting rid of one of the pieces doesn't necessarily mean you're safe in that deck. Um, so you kind of get you need to get off two surgical extractions to really start to pressure them by perhaps getting rid of all the hogax and all of mm-hmm. the altars. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's interesting because the altar sets up the combo and then initiates the kill. If an attack step doesn't get you there, then you just mill out your opponent with like a bajillion zombies yep. stacking to the altar. So I mean, there's a there's a very high level of synergy. <laughs> And to see see as it, we haven't seen a deck rocket ship to tier one like this, I think since Eldrazi Winter, right? Uh, I mean maybe Death Shadow really popped quite hard. Um, I feel like Arclight Phoenix was probably a little slower on the uptake, but it doesn't happen often. It's not very often that you see a new deck show up in Modern and take like four of the top eight slots of a major event. And that's that's what by the way that's what makes Alter so dangerous is that it is both the combo and the kill. That's one of the problems is like there's a couple things 
in magic card design you have to keep out for. One of them is if your card says, if, then, or when you do something, then do this, that phrase is dangerous as Felidar Guardian and its variants have taught us. Um, and similarly, any card that can both churn an engine and then also kill people is the other one. Birthing Pod was an engine, but it didn't kill people, right? The card Birthing Pod couldn't kill someone. It had to be the cards that you found. Um, but Alter of Dimension is like, yep, I will put a bunch of stuff in your graveyard, but then also I will kill people. So <coughs> see how that yeah, goes. And and with KCI, it's four mana, first of all. And as you said, it doesn't kill you by itself. You still have to have the kill ready to go. Mm-hmm. Deck, I mean, deck is looking very, very strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so following on that, foil, lightning rifts out of Onslaught, like 10 to 20, 9 to 20. Uh, cycling, you know, we saw the new, uh, whatchamacallit, Astral Slide. We saw the Onslaught cycling land. So there's some excitement about around cycling. Lightning rifts still not legal in modern, as far as I know, but people are about picking them up just because it's an old cycling, cool cycling foil, and people are thinking about it now. Mass manipulation out of Ravnica Allegiance has been uh, pivotal in the standard Bant control list, where it uh, tends to take control of permanence from the opponent. Um, foils going from three to six on the back of that. Um, when a rare or a mythic gets popular enough in standard, you will see some movement on the foils often, uh, but not the kind of thing I would want to be any very deep on. No, no, me neither. I'd be insta-selling these if I had them. Then you've got might sliver out of time spiral foils like 253 bucks up to about six uh first sliver a bunch of new slivers of course the foil slivers are going to keep popping we're probably going to see these every week um dark steel reactor foil oh by the way i i don't know if you caught this somebody on uh, i think it was somebody sent it to saffron it was a tweet of some guy playing a urza lands deck in modern but it, with more fun, yeah, with more more on Tron. That then, but then he only played slivers with individual mana costs, I think, or like he mostly did that. So they essentially all became free. So like you land more on Tron, and then cast first sliver, cascade, and then you just cast every sliver in your hand because they basically all cost. Uh, they're all free and they all cascade, but it's just a fascinating concept, I will say. I mean, it seems like the deck can't do anything if you don't cast more fun Tron, but. Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, wh- what is this deck doing with its Tron lands, the turns leading up to uh, casting their yeah. seven ca- <laughs> Their seven casting cost colorless card. The the turns before they cast that, they are browsing MTG top eight to look for other good decks to play. (laughs) Then there's Darksteel Reactor out of Darksteel foils like nine to 20. This pops left and right. I mean, it's an ancient card. There's not that many copies. Uh, I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but it feels like it's always kind of floating around with no copies left. Um, Almost definitely from Urza, the, you know, the new commander there and all of his... His love of artifacts um, and Dark Steel Reactor making all your stuff. Was this one that makes them all indestructible? It was pretty darn good if your deck is all artifacts. Uh, Dark Steel Reactor is the other one, right? It's one indestructible. In the beginning of your upkeep, you may put a charge counter on it. Mm. And when it has 20 or more charge counters on it, you win the game. Isn't there one of them that makes them all indestructible? Dark Steel Forge, I believe. Uh, okay, that's what I'm thinking of. This one is much weirder, and I haven't seen it played in anything. Uh, Lantern Control apparently is running it in modern. Maybe that's who. Maybe that's why this actually spiked because getting twenty up, uh, counters on this card in EDH because it's only once per turn is going to be, take a long time. 
Um, even though it's indestructible, that's still a lot of counters. You could proliferate the hell out of it, but putting it in lantern control where you can easily go 20 turns without anything happening seems more reasonable. I, I don't actually see it in any of the lists that have 5 would recently, so maybe it was on a stream or something that we didn't catch. Yeah. Whatever. Um, following that, Gravecrawler out of Dark Ascension, eight or nine bucks up to about 20. This is on the back of Hogak. Hogakin. Uh, there's actually not that many copies of Gravecrawler. I thought there were more printings of this card, but I looked it up when I noticed it on our list this week, and it turns out um, there was just a buy box promo, which is a reasonable supply, of course, especially since we're talking. Well, it's Dark Ascension, so that had that really dropped off from Innistrad. And then there was the dual deck, Bless versus Curse, but there wasn't a zillion of those either. So, uh, yeah, price move there. I that's gonna re, that's gonna retrace back towards probably like twelve to fifteen. Um, if you can get twenty four, knock yourself out. But you know, if it gets back down to twelve dollars, almost might be worth just holding on to it uh, to see if this deck keeps going. I'm not convinced that's coming. If you look at TCG, there is no inventory. Well, this got like, bought out like yesterday, didn't it? But I think, but people legitimately are going to be playing this deck. Like I think sure. this deck is so powerful, a lot of pros will switch onto it, and a lot of the other pieces in the deck are not particularly expensive. So these these cards that have only <laughs> seen kind of single printings or single printing plus promo are gatekeeping. And I could see Gravecaller is just ending up being a thirty dollar card in the next few months. Oh, I mean, if the Hogak. If the deck keeps going, absolutely. No question about that. I'm just thinking like, I the, don't know. the inclusion of Silent Gravestone in the deck gives it some play against the anti-graveyard uh, hate and, and makes it so that I don't think hating this deck out of the format just by focusing on graveyards is really going to get you there that easily. Hmm. Well... Yeah. Also, I, I I have to I have to call nonsense on your claim there that the a lot of the other cards in the deck aren't that expensive because it runs Hogak, which is how much now, and Vengevines, uh, <laughs> and now Gravecrawler, and I think there's something else in there that's pricey too, isn't there? The deck cost according to Card Kingdom pricing would be like twelve hundred bucks. That's which is about ish for a modern deck, right? Yeah. Um. Nope. Somebody's going buying a bike. Following that, Sapphire Medallion out of Tempest, uh, twelve bucks to thirty, I guess. Like, uh, I mean, it's great in EDH. I don't know why anyone would be playing this. Like, I don't know what would have changed other than just Windowlane supply here. Uh, well, this reduces your blue spells by one, right? And yeah. with Urza, you tap it for one, so yeah. it's a it's a two mana two mana rock. Yeah. Which is fine. I mean, that's that's solid, but and, I, and we haven't had we've only had two printings ever. Once in Tempest a million years ago, and then in Commander twenty fourteen. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that's it makes sense that people like it. Seems a there, little speculative, but there are copies listed as low as eighteen currently on TCG. So this thirty dollar price tag is is a little bit of smoke. Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense to me. Um. The Grim Hardest Specs, the Ugin's Fate promos, which, by the way, as a whole, have been remarkably popular, much more so than I ever would have imagined, uh, enough so that I feel bad about having sold my Altar Ugin, uh, has moved from 750 or so up towards 20. This is a great card in EDH. It also shows up in Modern occasionally. Uh, it's a cool card, but again, these are the alternate art Ugin's Fate cards. I... 
guess you sell it here. Really? I mean, I, I don't you can sell think... it here if you're if you happen to be holding one in your binder and there's no rush if if you can't find it. Right. Like, the only, my only my only catch here is of opportunity cost, right? Like yep. the card's not really ever going to go down, but I these aren't going to be accelerating in price that much, so you know, hold it for as long as you feel like it, I suppose. I don't think this can double again to 40. Like there just won't be the demand to support it. No, not I mean not not before uh like 2025 at least. Yeah, it's it's basically like a Tessa Karlov card. That's probably the driving force in recent months. Yeah, seems reasonable. So the other card from Hogak is Bridge from Below. Modern Masses printing is going from 5 to 15. I was picking up foils at 5 last weekend. Oh, she's pretty nice. I'm pretty sure those foils are going to be in the 20 to $30 range, as we will talk about shortly. Um, Pale Bears out of Ice Age. Uh, people went after from $1.50 to 5 on the back of Ayula. Uh, I don't think Bear Commander deck is going to be anything more than a flash in a pan. I don't think you want to be chasing that particular train. Roshi hard, Meanderer. Ha- just, just like hard agree. Hard agree. <laughs> hard agree. Roshin Meanderer out of Shadowmoor foils from 7 to 20 plus on the back of people being excited to run it with Unbound Flourishing in EDH. Um, the X-Spell doubling uh, season oh, that card makes sense. out of Modern Horizons. Teferi's Puzzle Box at 8th edition. This also goes for the 7th edition, the 9th edition, and I believe the Visions was the other edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got four total, but they're all climbing because it's been a long time since the last printing, and they are super useful in Narset control decks in Modern where they basically just shut off your opponent's draw step completely. Yeah, apparently... Um... What happened is we knew about the uh, Narset and, um, oh shoot, what's the other one? Crud. Basically, uh, Teferi's Puzzle Box lets you go from playing the Narset combo in blue-white to blue-red. So now there's another way that you can build that deck. And I guess Jerry T was talking about it on his podcast, I think, or something like that. I'm sorry, the Gamma, Gamma yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was because I kind of heard they, it secondhand. But I my think, friend is like, "Oh just... yeah, they were talking about this, and that's why it suddenly went." And he's like, "Oh, it's a shame you didn't know those." It's like, "Yeah, but this was a tough buy." This one's really funky because this popped due to, to uh, oh shoot, I stumbled on his name last time too. Uh, the oh, commander Nekusar. This popped from Nekusar a while ago, and then stayed sure. reasonably. It saved it like five or six bucks. So actually, there were a lot of distributed copies already out there in people's Nekusar stacks because that was a really popular commander. So now that people want this for modern, there's like no supply left. There's five printings, but they're all ancient, and a ton of commander players already bought them and are not giving them back. I randomly bought for like a few dollars each a playset of Russian Russian Ninth Edition. <laughs> To fairies puzzle boxes, which are now my modern playset, apparently. Um, as I'm selling off my rando seventh, eighth, ninth English copies and a few foils. Uh, cards real with an artist, it's nasty, nasty. Um, body double from planar chaos foils going from 13 to 50 plus. Let's call that realistically probably 20 to 30. Um, on the back of potential combo potential with Vesper Lark, the new Revelark, um, little brother and Modern Horizons that lets you go get um, things with, I think, one toughness or one power or less. And, of course, Body Double in the Graveyard is a zero zero. So there's a whole bunch of different ways you can attempt to abuse that. None of them uh, have yet convinced me they are super viable in Modern when you can be running hyper-synergistic strategies like Hogak. 
Um, but I'm sure people will be playing around with it on streams. Yeah, uh, I, I just want to say, I think I... I think the people trying to build the body double deck in modern are hoping for an alternate universe modern that doesn't exist. Um, and I sold one Japanese foil copy for some dumb number and I was glad to take it. Cause I'm like, good luck. Good luck making this deck work. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that the level of synergy goes pretty deep uh, in the Hogak deck and you're just not going to like the fact that we got carrion feeder back and it's a zombie so it helps pop grave crawler out and gives you the sack that you need. Like, Does I don't lot. think you're. I, I don't <laughs> think you're going to see any other modern horizons decks come together with that level of synergy. Yeah, that that doesn't happen too often. So words of wilding out of onslaught non foils from a dollar to five on the back of Ayula. This is people thinking bears is going to be a thing. I will say that uh, the command the command zone. Um, four-way commander action this week is going to feature a bear deck so that could move these cards a little further do you know do you know why this card's popular james why is that dub bears dub bears that was an snl skit wasn't it actually a long long time ago <laughs> and it's, is that mike D- is that mike dicta i don't actually know dicta dicta, dicta. dicta. yeah you i'm quickly showing my knowledge of that joke is shallow at best <laughs> very shallow all right misform ultimus from legions foils from a dollar to five <laughs> People making changeling uh, moves in bad finance world, I guess. Changeling um, tribal. Yeah. Talisman of Unity out of Mirrodin from 2 to 10. As people start talking about how the new Talisman's foils are going to be worth targeting, and we'll be doing that shortly, other people are looking at the older Talismans and realizing that there are some still sitting around worth grabbing. Village Bell Ringer out of Innistrad foils from a dollar to five. This is on the back of it being used as a single copy in Vanifar in modern. Um, so several Vanifar lists have gone 5-0. Not so much recently. <laughs> I, again, it's not clear whether those... That's toolbox-style decks seem to be pretty well ensconced in Tier 2 for Modern. And I think you kind of just have to want to play them. <laughs> if you're trying to win a tournament, that's probably not your choice. Um, when you could be playing Dredge or Hogak or various forms of Phoenix or even just Burn. It- um it is kind of funny how we were all excited about how modern was going to develop and change and the, you know, how long it would take a while, you know, months for all this to be kind of felt out in the metagame, the shift. And then week one, we see the alter Hogak combo and we're like, oh, yeah, it's going to be hard for pretty much anything to be better than that. Like, even if you're bringing graveyard <laughs> hate, it's going to be yeah. t- like if you don't have rest in peace in your opener, like that's going to be brutal, right? Because they can also abuse the London Mall again and probably win off of three cards. Like you, I realistically think you could win on turn two off four cards. Um, or if if not that, you can definitely get close. So it's just like all of these other strategies and like, oh, is this going to be good? Like, no, none of them are faster than Hogakin until they are like, that's just it. Yeah. If anything, the barrier to entry for interesting decks, it, like the castle walls got like another 10 feet higher. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we just added another tier one deck that is much in the same vein as playing. It feels when you're playing against Hogak, you are in very many ways like when you're playing against Dredge. They Not only do they share a couple of Dredge elements in Stinkweed Imp and Golgari Thug in the versions that aren't running Vegvine, I believe, but... They're also just very similar graveyard recursion engines that kind of do their thing and they either stumble or they don't. And mm-hmm. you either find your rest in peace or your, you know, 
highly tactical surgical extractions at exactly the right moment or you don't. So, and, and the thing is, like, as I said, they can bring in silent gravestone against that stuff. And currently they're running like two copies in the sideboard. If they, if, but if they need to go up to four, then you, and you're only bringing in four rest in peace, then they are, uh, I guess rest in peace still works because it doesn't target, target. Yeah, but yeah. it does, it does shut down um, the decks that are running surgical, leaning on surgical extraction or whatever the artifacts are that tap to remove cards from the graveyard. Yeah, it's good if you're like if you're not in white, the silent gravestone seems great. Like the only people that have access to recipes are the white decks. So uh, clearly like the blue white decks are going to be looking even better. So this this coming weekend, if you were playing Hogak, you need to be bringing an answer to rest in peace. That's your your angle, yeah, I think. And, and they have it in they run for Wisp Mirror to take care of that eventuality. Yeah, well, there you go. That's the evoke uh, one three flyer <laughs> yeah. for one white. Yep, that's so. been popular a few times in the past. Yep. All right. So if, 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 our list. If, if your deck has Wismare, you are not playing Fair Magic. No one has ever played that card fairly. <laughs> yeah. So to finish off the list, the aforementioned many times Hogak Arisen Necropolis, which we completely missed ahem, in our ahem. discussion. In no, our no, discussion no. Who, with who's the we on that one, buddy? <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to the tape. Are you claiming that you said it was good? Yes, I had like a several minute moment when we had Dan on, and I said, "What about Hogak? That card seems really curious to me." I'm like, "Convoke and delve. Like you can play this for two mana over and over." I'm like, "I didn't call the altar combo, but I did make a point of saying the card seemed good to me." Well, I mean, it, I, I put it on the list of consideration, so it was it was obviously uh, mutually understood that it had a high inherent power level, but none of us caught the Altar of Dementia combo that was being printed in with Modern Horizons. No, 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 no nobody did. But I just want to point out, if you go to the tape, I was the one standing for it. However, even if you are more correct than me, I'm the one who's benefiting because I was quicker on the tri- trigger this weekend and bought a whole shit ton of Hogak at 250. Yeah, well, the expression do as i say not as i do has never been more apt like you can just you can uh boil my entire mtg mtg finance career down to do as i say not as i do because i am right well like well and often enough that i get to do this podcast but like still never managed to buy the right cards for myself because it's just like always poorly timed well, and you bought that super expensive Buffalo Dual Land lately, so. I, I did. I bought a, it's not a tropical island. It's probably a, you see. It's like a bayou. Yeah. What's the, yeah, like bayou's a, probably A lawn closer. beside some water. Bayou. Yeah. 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 That's grim. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can get, I can get with some bayou action. You got to get one of those uh, big fan boats. Ooh, I could. Uh Una, Queen of the Fae, is our ridiculous card of the week. In theory, foils going from 9 to 90. Total nonsense. Nobody's going to pay that for that card, and I don't know why anybody would be targeting it. Um, Card is, like, fun in EDH, but I'm not aware of any specific card that put it over the top recently. So, moving right along. Yeah, I got nothing on that one. Let's segue into our cards to watch. A big, huge pile of picks this week. There is so much going on, um, as has been true for months. I'm going to start with some of this stuff from Hogak that I don't that I think still has legs, even though it's it's already shown some real growth. Um, and this has been a common theme when magic is running as hot as it is now. Just because something has gained 50 or 100 percent doesn't necessarily mean you are out of gas. Case in point, bridge from below foils 
I was picking them up last weekend when Hogax first started coming onto the radar at five. Now it's about 15. I see no reason why these foils will not hit 30. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the card has been curiously positioned, like, like not good enough to be worth buying, but like you're looking at it at like five and five to six and you're like, hmm, we're not there today, but it feels like we could be. And then with this going on, I absolutely believe this card could be 30 bucks. Like the, the, the ladder on TCG looks like this right now. 16, 16, 16, 17, 19, 20, 25, 55. That's it. That's all the foils currently listed. And sure, people like me have 10, 12, 20 foil copies incoming that we're going to resell, but those are going to get bought four at a time by people that are going to run the deck and spike some local tournaments and get some prize money. <laughs> like, uh, I think the only thing that, that should give people pause on the foils would be what is the potential longevity of the deck if it's too good for modern. Thing is, I think this deck is clearly tier one, but I don't think it's any more tier one than the other available tier one decks. Like I don't I don't think it's clear that this is strictly better than Dredge, that its average kill turn is much faster than Dredge, or that it is much more consistent than Dredge. Now, if I'm wrong and it's you know six percentage points or fifteen percentage points better than Dredge then maybe in six months or so, you will see a banning. But as we said earlier, it's going to be really tricky to pick the card to ban because you just printed these cards. So you kind of want people to play with them. So <laughs> maybe there's extra graveyard hate coming in coming sets. It, it, there's a couple things going on here. I think that Bridge from Below was always going to be a viable pick again in Modern. Um, it was probably a fine pick at $5, knowing, having no clue where how it would pop up again. It's sure. probably, the foils are probably solid at 15 because now the deck, one weekend, we're like, this looks like the real deal. Uh, and even if people bring Graveyard Hate to the table, this seems like it's still going to do fine. And if it's not better than the other Tier 1 decks, it still looks like it's going to be very competitive. The the hook is that you're absolutely right. And like I mentioned before, and you just said it now, like Wizards doesn't want to ban Alter of Dimension Hogak. They just printed the damn things. Well, so what do they do? Maybe they go after Bridge from Below. Bridge from Below has been a problem over and over and over again, right? Like there has not been a dredge card banned that wasn't getting played from with Bridge from Below. So maybe they just say, you know what? This card has had a long time in the sun, we don't love what it wants graveyard decks to do. So rather than take away your new toys, we're just going to take away the old one and let you figure out how this works. Um, so if anything, I would think bridge is probably the closest to being on the chopping block. Again, this sounds extremely uh, preemptive given that we're one weekend, but that just kind of, that kind of is on my, my radar. But I mean, over the next month, this seems extremely doable. There's a couple of things. One is that this has had three printings, but they were Future Sight, Modern Masters, and Ultimate Masters. The only printing in recent years is Ultimate Masters. And yeah, it's a recent printing, but it was only a master set, not a standard set. So the foils just don't run that deep. 
Not as deep as you might think, and especially not in the face of a deck that looks this powerful and has this many people excited. So even if you're just looking at a three-month horizon, I think you're in and out at 15 on foils is just fine. Like, you're going to get in at 60 a set. They're, by the time you hear this, if you're depending on whether you're a pro trader or not, you may not even find any fi at 15. So you might be looking at 20. Let's call it 80 a set, and your exit is somewhere at 100 to 120. Mm-hmm. Seems totally fine to me. Yeah. All right. Your first pick of the week? Um, so James and I chatted a little bit beforehand. Uh, I don't know if he's going to give me as hard of a time on air as he did off air, but <laughs> I went looking through, um, through some of the more popular cards of modern horizons and two of them popped out at me. Uh, I'll start with, uh, spring bloom druid spring bloom. So, uh, and I, I actually caught this one off the Lord wind grace page. I was like, Oh yeah, they're definitely going to want him. So spring bloom druid, for those of you who don't remember is the, the harrow on a body. So three mana one, one, he enters the battlefield, sack a land, uh, go get two basic land cards and put them in the play tapped. So obviously every Lord wind grace deck is going to want this. So is every get rock monster deck and every other lands matter decks, because you don't get blown out by a counter spell like you do with harrow where you paid three mana to sacrifice your own land. Um, this allows you to not have to do it until he comes into play. It also is recursive. Foils on Spring, Spring Bloom Druid are currently about uh, about two bucks you will pay for Foil Spring Bloom Druids. There are actually not very many copies at all. There are 11 vendors at the moment. Now, technically, Modern Horizons is not even on the shelves yet, right? Like that's this weekend. So I expect supply to bump up here in the, the coming weekend as people crack their boxes. And it is only a common. But as the the drums have been beaten on uh, on Twitter, you know, they say Modern Horizons is an unlimited print set, but that's not going to mean anything if people are still interested in War of the Spark and Magic 2020 spoilers start next week. There's, you know, a lot of people just don't have the money for this, especially with the higher price packs, higher priced packs. I don't expect people to chew through the boxes on this that like they could theoretically. So I don't think supply is going to go super deep. And I think Spring Bloom Druid is going to end up a EDH staple. Um, not like Eternal Witness staple, but I do think it's going to be quite popular. Um, so with foils at two bucks and supply low relative to other foil commons, especially ones that are as or more popular, I think that you're looking at probably between six and 10, depending on just how popular it gets. I can believe that people will run this because Harrow is in like 4% of all EDH decks or something or 10% or whatever the number is. It's a whole bunch. I think 10,000 decks reported. EDH rec stats have shifted recently, so it's a little tricky. But my main concerns here is that this is a common and that the market has not fully formed around the foils. Um, you're going to get a handful of foil commons per box with Modern Horizons. Most of those are going to land the next few weeks. I would want to wait and see where it bottoms out before I targeted this. And I just think that there are overall better targets in Modern Horizons at higher rarities that are likely to turn the corner faster. Huh. Well, I can't make I can't make that the claim that that's not true. But this, I think, at least gives people the room. Like, for instance, I might think your bridge from below pick is better, but maybe I can't find that many at 15. 
Right. So sometimes like the pick can just be better, but the supply for how many you want at the price you want them just isn't out there. So this kind of gives you some other choices like, oh, yeah, I'm going to grab these guys bridge from bridge from blows, but he's got three of these spring bloom druids. I'm also going to grab those um, because those I can kind of sit on a little bit longer and let them mature, kind of diversify. Sure. So my next pick is the Vengevine WMCQ promo, which I think is probably like the least desirable of all of the fo- available foils. Um, I really liked the Vengevine box toppers last week at 40. I think you can still make the argument that at 50, they're going to go to 80. So especially if you think those are cooler to play with and you'd be buying the playset for yourself to play with and then looking to out them later, perhaps, um, then you can still go after box toppers. They're out there at 50 and there's a pretty good coupon this week uh, on TCG player, like 8% uh, cash back, I believe. And I think that on eBay, a lot of people will have been offered a 13% off if they're purchasing through the app. So it kind of depends on your timing. But the Vengevine MC, WMCQs are around 35 right now. I think that no less than two weeks ago, they were probably closer to 20. And I think from 35 to 50 on these or box toppers 50 to 80, both are pretty likely. Okay. I think that those are totally fine numbers. Um, I sold a playset of pack non foils at 30 a piece so if you're getting the wmcqs at 35 50 bucks seems no problem and i think the the core risk here is that the hogak deck rotates away from using vengevine which it has there are two versions of the deck one that does one that doesn't there is no in between it's not like they sometimes run two it's all or nothing so if it became known that the correct build of hogak in the current meta has evolved into the no Vengevine version, then Vengevine is back on the nobody's really playing this card plan. Yeah. Um, but you know, the the that's a fair concern. I will say that you're you're backstopped a little bit that Vengevine pops up every now and then, right? It feels like once a year somebody wants to play Vengevine. Um, and it gets real exciting for a moment. This is probably the best it's looked for a while um but even if you get burned on the on hogak not making it a central card you'll probably find it again later yeah and i guess the the key upside to both bridge from below foils and vengevine wmcqs is that they are short-term specs very rarely do i put anything on here that's not mid to long meaning six to twelve months plus this is three months or less put possibly a week or two so that kind of turn, if you can even get squeeze 20 or 25% out in a couple of weeks, then you are doing very, very well indeed. Right. So Vengevine, WMCQ promos, good choice. Uh, my second pick is the one James gave me a real hard choice time over uh, at the start of the cast here, um, which is Scale Up. So I noticed Scale Up when I was browsing the TCG player uh, bestsellers out of Modern Horizons. And it turns out that there are only two non-land cards more popular than Scale Up. Hogak and Alter. So it's the five basics, those two cards, and then Scale Up. It's got about half as many listings available as other cards that are comparable. Like other uncommons have twice as many listings as Scale Up does. So that's like Tribute Mage, one of the Talismans, Generous Gift, Soulbender. Um, <clears throat> now, you might be thinking like, wow, is Infect really pushing this card? And I don't think it is. I think some people want this for Infect, but when I look at a card like this, which has relatively minimal impact in modern, right? You have one deck that probably wants a couple copies and nobody else wants it, but it's extraordinarily popular on TCG player, like more popular than virtually every other card in the set, leads me to believe that there's a very 
powerful casual contingent that likes the card. And that happens every now and then. Like you look at a card that seems weirdly expensive. It's not played in any formats, but supply is low and price is high. And you're like, what the hell's going on? Uh, well, a lot of casuals play magic and this seems to be something they're, uh, they find appealing. Um, and the TCG player bestseller lists are a good way to check that too. If you, if you check those for sets, you might be surprised what the best selling cards in any given set are that, that tells a story. Um, so I think what's happening with scale up is that there's just a lot of kitchen table type players who are interested in the card, um, that we are generally not aware of. Um, you can get non foils right now at about two bucks, give or take that price might drop. This come well, I would expect it to drop a little bit this coming weekend as supply floods the market and everyone hits, you know, starts listing their cards. So you don't have to buy it today. You can wait till like Monday or Tuesday. Uh, but overall, there's a lot of demand on this card. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see prices somewhere get like the Spring Bloom Druid for non-foils between six and ten. Like you might be able to buy a list this at four, maybe five bucks. And if you get really lucky, you might be able to say sell play sets with the individual copies at like eight to maybe even ten dollars. Um it just seems like there's a lot of demand here that doesn't exist for the other cards. So I'm going with the I'm going with the numbers on this one. I'm worried that you are painting logic over top of numbers that could be interpreted in a different way for instance this card could be uh have lower listings because vendors are waiting to see whether infect is a thing before they choose their price it could have less listings because it has already been targeted uh, by speculators and all the cheapest copies have been snapped off um it could be just that the market hasn't filled in yet and we're going to see a very different picture emerge in the next week or two um i think and I think that for a uncommon, even for Modern Horizons, to go from two to, say, six, yeah, I, I think that's fine on a, say, 12 to 18-month horizon with some degree of certainty. And I think that your buy list exit will be 350 to four in that same horizon. So it won't be quite a double up, but it'll still be totally solid for, for most speculators. Um, and if players want to get a, a set for themselves, no reason to really hold off. I, I actually already have bought 20 copies of this card, but I got them from Card Kingdom at 79 cents a piece um, because some of the stuff they had listed this weekend just seemed way too, 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 too cheap. Um, and I figured, like, if everybody else thinks this is a $2 card and they're posting it at 79 cents, then at minimum, my buy list should be $2 within a year, uh, in which case I'm doing just fine. I'm not convinced that there is casual demand for this card. I think it's either speculator and or people looking to play it in Infect. Um, it just doesn't have the hallmarks of casual appeal the way, the way that I would expect it to. Um, however, I do have a modification to the to the spec that I think probably puts people in the driver's seat, which is uh, this is not a master set. Foils are not in every pack, and though foil commons are you know fairly common because they're foil commons, foil uncommons are not all that common at all in this kind of configuration. So. If you have a set that is being printed 75% or so of the total print run of a standard set and it costs twice as much as usual, then a foil uncommon could easily approximate a standard uh, played foil rare or something. In which case, I think looking for cheap uh, foils of this card under $10 to go to say 20 in a year is just as reliable. Yeah, and may, I don't disagree. And may, and may require you to handle less cardboard. In that case, I don't, in that particular aspect, I don't disagree. There are four foil copies, four foil vendors on TCG right now at 10 bucks each. So if you're finding them at like six this weekend, that's probably a pretty good uh, place to be. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think the idea of vendors holding copies because they're waiting to see if in fact is good. Eh, I don't think vendors are generally bothering with that, right? They, they're way, they want way too. They're way more interested in having turnover than they are playing that type of game. Uh, if it got speculated on already and people went to the map for this card, um, I guess I don't know that, right? Like I don't have the the price history of the card, like the inventory history to have that information. So that could be the case. I'm not saying it's not. Seems like it would be a weird spec to make if you if if the supply on this was the same as everything else, why would you pick this one? Like, do you really think in fact it's gonna be that good? Maybe. Maybe some guy out there is like, I think in fact it's gonna be nuts and I'm gonna buy every copy of scale up I can find at you know less than two dollars. Uh and he he did that himself. I maybe, maybe I'm willing to accept that as as a miss on my part then. The thing about Infect is that it got both scale up and waterlogged growth. So it it gets slightly better mana as well. And I still don't think that's going to make a big difference. I just think Infect is the kind of deck whose percentage of the metagame is unlikely to shift, even if it gets a full, like, like a, 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 even if it gets a half turn faster, which is probably what's going on here. Um, I don't think it's enough. I just think people have already made up their minds as to whether they want to be Infect players or not. And it still doesn't, the deck is probably tier 1.5, tier 2 in modern. Maybe it's tier 1.5 with the upgrades. Yeah, but, but I agree with you on all this. But, like, but I agree. Ho- in fact, isn't selling this card. Right. But Hogak, Arclight, Dredge, Tron have just, they had put up results so consistently over time. Well, not Hogak, but the rest of them. That most of this tier 1.5 plus stuff is just being held down forever. And so I think scale up's going to make people money. I think foils are better. Still got a few cards to get through here. Um, my next pick is Talisman of Creativity, which is also an uncommon, um, but I'm going after the foils. Um, almost like most of these talismans are going to do well over a long enough horizon, say two years. Um, some of them may do well over a year type period. The thing about these is that you don't buy one of these and transfer it around to your various EDH decks you buy multiples of each of them because a lot of your decks are going to want them. Talisman of Creativity is in blue and red, and that's a color combination that has trouble ramping compared to some of the others. If you're not playing green, then you are inherently weaker with ramp. So Creativity, currently eight or nine in the public market. In Europe, you can get them as low as five. Um, I think targeting these in the six to $7 range to get to say... Something like $15 over a mid to long term horizon seems totally fine. It's a slow burn spec. You're not going to get to flip it in the next few months. So if you have fast flip priorities like Hogak cards, then I think you focus there first. It's funny that we talk about like basically the long term is now six months. <laughs> We're like, okay, Hogak cards are like buy it. And by the time it shows up at your door, it might be ready to flip. Whereas six months used to be like, oh, that's pretty quick. Like the only way you were beating that was if you had a bead on a combo deck that you thought was going to pop in the next couple weekends. Well, I mean, I threw the line in the water on Twitter the other day to see if I could short Hogak. <laughs> like basically, basically just saying like, if you bought Hogak on pre-order, but you're not planning on speculating on it and flipping it, you're going to keep them for yourself. But you're also not, you know, a top pro and you don't need them in hand for the next month or so. Let me tell you where to ship them. <laughs> we'll split the profit and I'll replace your copies with ones I bought that are going to arrive a little later. Mm-hmm. Do you have any takers? 
yeah, there was a, there was a few different offers. I didn't take anybody up on it yet because it's more effort than it's probably worth for me. Um, but I was curious to what to whether people what people thought. Now that we're several days further along, I'm not even sure it makes sense. Like I, I don't think Hogak is going to collapse. It doesn't look flash in the pan. It looks very very real. So if anything, it could be headed up, not down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, I, I think Talipin is pretty solid. I, there's the cheapest copies are nine bucks right now. So you're not paying seven for them, but this weekend, if you can find them at six or seven, that's pretty solid because even, you know, even the other foil talismans are like three and four bucks at the lowest price, I think for foils. So a modern horizons one at six is pretty good looking. Yeah. So next on my list, and I've got a few extras this week, uh, cause there's some modern horizon stuff that I think, I mean, this is really just about. We could have done our fourth segment as priorities heading into release weekend for Modern Horizons. So consider this extended cards to watch a variant thereof. The other card that was on my radar that I picked up some of this week because it just looks scandalously low is Kess Dissident Mage. $4 for this mythic? That just cannot be right mid to long term. This is a card that was already a good commander, but only ever had the crappy commander foil printing. And so when it was doing work in Legacy, they had this problem at multiple tournaments where there weren't enough unmarked versions of the card in the room to not have to proxy them. So this is in fact not a reprint. It is the first printing in non-foil of the card. And the set, despite everybody talking nonsense about it being printed demand, is not. It shows every indication of the opposite being true, that this is going to be a relatively modest print run Large, larger than, like, say, Modern Masters 2017, probably, but significantly lower than a standard set, um, something like War of the Spark, etc. And the fact that these packs are twice as much means that this is the equivalent of pricing cast at $2 <laughs> for a card that is only going to show up, like, once or twice per case. And none of that just makes any sense to me. I don't think a Grixis control shell is likely to start dominating in modern anytime soon but <clears throat> you can certainly build that deck with snapcaster mages and dreadhorde arcanist and maybe some death shadows and maybe Kess. um and people will and it's an awesome casual card and it's a strong commander card so it's got broad appeal relative like moderate appeal in multiple formats and to me that says that these will be buy listing at 8 to 10 and 12 to 18 months this card's funky I, I don't like Kess, which if you caught in the convert, you, I mean, I, I kind of alluded to that in the conversation with Dan. I don't love the card, but to be fair, I haven't done a lot of research on the inventory numbers and popularity. So I will defer to you on this one. Um, four bucks for a mythic is pretty low from this set. I mean, that that's bargain bin mythic pricing so anyone who wants a copy other than the commander one is going to go here i mean it's possible there's enough legacy demand alone to bump that up a dollar from four dollars keep in mind that when we were talking about mox amber out of uh, out of dominaria we were looking at it like oh if this gets to six to eight dollars we're in (laughs) this is half that price right And, and and mox amber has never like really earned its keep anywhere and it came out of a standard set so Kess is not going to be a thing that you're going to flip quick. It's going to be like a 12 to 18 month hold, but I think it's going to be a pretty easy double up in that time frame. Okay. I, I can get on board. Um, you know what? While we're doing this, I'm just going to toss my other secret pick out that I did not actually put on the list, but 
I was looking at beforehand. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was like five, six weeks ago. Um, you, oh, it was uh, one episode one sixty seven. So uh, early May, so a little over a month ago, you picked to Fairy Time Raveler from ten to twenty. I think that that is still a buy at sixteen, uh, which is where he is today. Um, he is like the sixth most popular card in standard right now. And he's growing and he's quite popular modern. I think he's like the 23rd most popular card or most popular spell in modern, which is also really popular. Um, and I think that static ability that no one can play instance alone is very powerful. And I'm getting the feeling that people haven't quite wrapped their heads around it yet like it seems weird to say that given how popular it is but it seems like it's only going to keep getting more and more popular and we were talking before the cast about like combining silence with it which is pretty ludicrous Uh, but i think just think in general that it's just going to keep proving itself over and over well and it's all you didn't mention that it's in the top 20 war cards in uh on edh rec oh yeah i didn't even even look with like 800 decks already running it um and, and that said is ludicrously deep right like ultra ultra deep um and you know like i'm certainly not going to argue with teferi time reveler obviously people that got in when we first told them to five or six weeks ago at ten dollars have done very well this was you know credit to uh paul fuedo who answered when i asked the question on twitter in early may what were the spark card is going to be worth the most uh i think i said mid-june or something he said to Fairy Time Raveler, thirty dollars. Hmm. Well, he's 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 good at these types of things. So we, we we haven't quite got there yet, but it's you know ten to seventeen is already pretty strong, and I think it has every chance of going like seventeen to thirty pretty easily. Karn the Great Creator is in the same kind of boat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Karn, especially too, with how popular, uh, what you call it how popular the Michael Synthlatus combo has been well, one is of the also things, putting him in really good position. One of the things that Saffron's been complaining about is that the Karn Michael Synthlatus combo is just popping up in everything mm-hmm. because you can just, he, he's colorless and Lattice is in your sideboard slot. So it doesn't really cost you much to squeeze it into almost any old deck. And so, you know, like there are three and four color snow decks running around that stuff the Karn combo in there. Yeah. There's no synergy yep. between between Karn and the rest of those decks, like at all. But mm-hmm. it's that powerful because you're shutting off everything your opponent can do. Yeah, that that he's already pretty pricey, right? Like I don't have him up in front of me, but um, that's well, another his, one that's very curious. His market's actually below Teferi, I think. Is it? Let me just let me just take a look. M- yeah, my you concern get, you can get they, you can get copies of Karn at twelve, and I think that if you have to pick between Teferi at sixteen or seventeen and Karn at twelve, you go Karn. It's more upside. Yeah, probably. Probably. My, I do think it's way more likely Karn gets Karn or Mycosynth gets banned. Um, just because that is a pretty obnoxious combo to have available to every single deck in the format. Like, either it ends up oppressive because everyone plays it, or it's not good enough and nobody plays it. I don't know. The thing that's is, a tough one. I, I, don't, I don't think that's even remotely going to be on the radar for banning, because though Karn... Uh, owns his slots in various forms of Tron and is showing it up up in a bunch of other stuff. It's only going to win going to be when you see him start to show up in things like Arclight and Hogak and stuff where it's just becoming so obvious that the combo is just too good for the format. 
that I think mm-hmm. they'd really need to worry about it. If the top eight is two decks that happen to have the current combo and a bunch of other completely different stuff, then that's not going to be enough to get it banned. Which is a fair point. I mean, I guess it depends on how again, how the format moves a little bit. Um, but yeah, Karn at 12 is also very good at the very least. Okay. So I've got a couple more uh, to wrap this up. Uh, the other one that I think should be on everybody's radar that's becoming pretty obvious as a unique fetch land with broad applications in multiple formats, including modern and EDH and certainly casual, Prismatic Vista. Um if this card gets down into the $16 to $18 range this weekend, I think you can start buying safely, assuming that it'll, it will get back up to 25 or 30 again, which is where it's been hovering earlier this week. Heading now into a period where it's going to get some downward price pressure. It is only a rare. Um, it's not entirely clear that any of the decks that really want it are going to be tier one in modern. Um, it looks like it fits into a bunch of streamer style decks um it's the kind of thing that the snow deck wants to run for instance and decks like that have a long way to go before they earn their chops in modern but this is a very unique land it does a very specific thing it brings a non-basic i mean it brings a basic into play untapped so it's strictly better than evolving wilds in most situations and it's going to see it's the number one card on edh rec from horizon so far that is very popular um i I don't know what to make of this at the moment. It's probably good. That's probably good. It's hard for me to say no to that. But the number one reported card at 186 decks is Vista. The next closest on EDH rec from Horizons is Talisman of Creativity, my other pick at 74 decks. Yeah. I like I wanna say I don't think Prismatic is quite that good, but at the same time it is a fetch land and it's a fetch land that does something distinct and it does it in every color deck so yeah buying this at like at 12 and 13 definitely i think is pretty fair 18 uh still probably totally fine still probably fine at the very least like this seems like a solid card for if you need a playset, buy two play sets and the thing to keep in mind is that because this gets snow lands because this gets wastes and whatever other basic types they print in the future and say in the next five years we might get one other basic type um it has every potential to just be more and more relevant over time and have this only this single printing in Modern Horizons probably for years. Yes, agree. That That's really where the strength lies is that it could, might not be in the next six months, but eventually someone somewhere is going to need this and then it'll really kick off. And it's just, you know, they, there's a lot of places they can stick it, but the question is whether they will. And the reprint reprint list at this point is very long and modern horizons just made it a lot longer on purpose um so you're probably going to dodge that bullet for a while now if i had to pick one final card i'm going to go with of all the canopy lands i think i would pick nurturing peatland uh above the others Uh, i think fiery islet is the most likely to be tier one relevant in modern because of blue red phoenix wanting to run for um and probably grixis death shadow wants it too um but nurturing peatland is probably has the highest cross format relevance it's the highest ranked one on edh rec so far which makes a lot of sense because gitrog and Windgrace will absolutely run the card um the fact that you can uh, recurse this card to keep drawing extra cards is pretty crazy um in those decks and lands matters in the jund theme for commander seems like it will be a long-term theme uh, and then in modern, um, you know, there are a bunch of different decks that might choose to run it. 
Um, none of them seem to be, uh, you know, top tier, <laughs> as it were. It's not like Hogak runs any copies of this. Um, and I, I haven't seen it show up in any list where I was like, oh, yeah, that's just posted up in modern and it's going to be there forever. So if you wanted a, a more if you wanted to lean to the modern side of the canopy lands rather than the the H side, I think you go after the white red one because I think every single burn deck is going to run four of that. Okay, I I, I was going to say uh, nurturing peatland seems solid, but my pick would be for sunbaked canyon over it. Uh, but it sounds like you're there, kind of there too. Yeah, I think I think that you can go some of both or one or the other and you're going to do just fine. If you're targeting 15 and you're holding for a year to 18 months looking for 25 to 30, you're going to do great. The the canopy lands are the anchor, the financial anchor of this set and they were designed very specifically to fill that role, that much is obvious. And between them and Vista, I think it's going to be really hard to go wrong. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I it they're the type of card that without a reprint, they will be expensive. Like, and it's just a question of how long it'll take. Um, but 17 ish bucks for these. I mean, they, they could very easily be 30 within what? Three months. And I think that the safe bet is you plan that these are going to be worth in a year, maybe 18 months. And if it goes faster then power to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and it, one of the nice things about these, like, this weekend, you could go really deep. I think you could spend $1,000 on Canopy Lands and be super happy with that result, looking for a 40% return in 18 months, and then just kick back and see what happens. Probably, probably. Really, I mean, if you've got a tremendous amount of money to throw at Modern Horizons, it's hard to imagine you really going too wrong. All right, so that was our big, long stack of picks. Have fun with those. Um, <laughs> let's move on to the modern challenge results. This is basically where Hogak just put on a show. Yeah, this was nuts. He was all over the place, blew the event out of the water. Um, most, of the lists were, most of the lists were pretty similar, so I don't know if there was a team working on it or what happened there. But uh, yeah, was it four out of the top eight places or something like that? Worth noting that first was not Hogak. First place in this event was a blue-white control list running two Jace the Mind Sculptor, three Narset, one Teferi Hero of Dominaria, and one Teferi Time Raveler. Four Snapcaster Mage, two Vandalian Click, one Oust, two Supreme Verdict, two Cryptic Command, a Dovin's Veto, Factor Fiction, Logic Knot, four Opt, four Path, one Spell Pierce, two Surgical Extraction, and a Detention Sphere. Detention Sphere is kind of cute in the Hogak list. Uh, against versus the Hogak list. And they also ran uh, two Force of Negation. Um, so this is the good version of the bad deck I'm building, <laughs> <laughs> where they just keep doing what's working for Blue White Control instead of trying to squeeze Isochron Scepters into the mix. Um, looking very flexible, very powerful. Uh, doesn't seem to have like huge game against the Graveyard. Like, even in their... I guess they have the three rest in peace in the sideboard. But I almost feel like we're moving into... A, I, I'm curious whether to see, like, Graveyard Hate is going to, like, pump to five slots in the in the near future in sideboards. I wouldn't be surprised at all. At least this coming weekend, people are going to be prepared to deal with that. They should be prepared to deal with it. And then Hogak was, in fact, in second. This was a Vengevine version of the list. Third place was a uh, Tron list that was running four Karn the Great Creator. 
Matter Reshapers, Reality Smashers. So this is Eldrazi Tron with Karn the Great Creator. Uh, that sounds pretty nasty too. Four Chalice of the Void, of course, uh, defines that list. And they get to run two Blast Zone these days, which is a nice upgrade, dealing with one casting cost stuff and uh, and so forth. The, then you had another Hogak and fourth, another uh, Mono Red uh, Aggro Burn deck in fifth, uh, Humans in sixth, another Hogak in seventh, and another blue-white... Con- no, uh, Esper... Oh, wow. This is kind of an interesting list that finished eighth, actually. This is Esper Death Shadow. Two Teferi Time Raveler, four Death Shadow, three Gurmag Angler, three Jace Friends Prodigy, three Snapcaster Mage, and two Street Wraith. So that creature package looks a lot like the Grixis Death Shadow builds we've seen in the past. But they've switched out the red for white so that they can have Teferi Time Raveler and Lingering Souls. And keep in mind that the Modern Horizons cards on this page are in their own grouping. So it's also playing three Ranger Captain of Eos. Right. So they're leveraging that mythic, which I called out in my article a couple weeks ago, this and Season Pyromancer as the mythics that were most likely to post up as three or four ofs in modern. Here we have Ranger Captain already top eighting a modern event. Um, certainly not as impressive a debut as Hogak, but there are almost as many copies in this top eight. <laughs> uh, I mean, he did do, he did have a pretty solid weekend, I suppose. Let's see. There was, yeah, there were five of them in the top eight. It's reasonable. It's reasonable. It's better than I thought it would be, honestly. Two of them in the humans list. This Esper list is pretty cool. Um, overall, it, it, I mean, without Hogak, it seems like Modern's getting... A, if you take Hogak out of the picture, it looks like Modern got a pretty cool twist. You're seeing those, you know, the Modern Horizons cards in most of the decks that aren't Hogak. Um, there's only like the, the, or the Eldrazi one. We didn't have it, any cards and the humans list aren't all playing them, but, um, in general, it's definitely having its, it is being, its presence is being felt, um, even through to like this blue red list in 11th place. It was playing magmatic sinkhole and Archmage's charm and one of your prismatic vistas, but it was just like blue red spells, but it didn't play Arcbound Phoenix. It was like a thing in the ice blood moon deck. Lots of cool stuff going on. Um, Hopefully the format can figure out how to deal with Hogak so we can see other cool cards. Yeah, I mean, format looks good to me. I mean, we'll see how good Hogak actually proves to be. Um, put When you get to the top 16, it added another four copies of the deck. <laughs> and I don't know, it's just, there's a push power level in general in 2019. Cards like Great Creator, Narset, Hogak, etc. are you know, defining the new power level for modern. And mm-hmm. it's high. It's pretty high. It is real high. It is real high. And I, I for the I do think we were gonna see more time raveler too. That that ability, that locking people out is so good. Um and then the plus one and the minus one are just or the minus three are just gravy. But uh all in all a cool looking format. And I think there's there's a lot of room for growth here too. This is still keep in mind like ultra early in the process. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen as time moves on. Um, people will probably take some time to figure out some of the more interesting strategies. Kind of browsing through as we talk here. There's uh, one of those Narset lists. This must be what uh, Conley was playing. Uh, which one is it? The... Oh, shoot. I just lost it. Oh, crud. Uh, it played a Narset with a bunch of funky effects. It had Days Undoing. Uh 
and ancestral vision. So there's some other cool stuff hanging around in here too. All right. So that brings us to segment four. Uh, our topic of the week this week is the uh, sort of the Netflix MTG anime. Uh, <laughs> This tweet says anime. We'll see if it's animated or anime. God, God. Oh, okay. But uh, Sam Black had a tweet and he said, which of the following investments is the way to bet that the magic TV show will bring a lot of new people to magic? Um, and, and essentially what he's asking is, if I think magic is going to see a boost in popularity because of this, t- of this show, where should I park my money? And he had four options. He had reserve list and slash power cards. He had modern or EDH cards, uh, original art, and Hasbro stock. Um, so, James, what I'd like to do here is lay out a few predicates, see if you agree with me so that we can agree kind of where to start this discussion from. Does that sound fair? Okay. So, the first predicate is that this is not going to have a material impact on the purchasing behavior of existing Magic players. Players like you and I, the people at your FNMs, at GPs, all those people, the existence of this TV show isn't really going to change with any significance the amount of Magic cards we buy. Is that fair? I don't... If you said measurable somewhere in there, then I agree with you. The... The yeah, but that doesn't mean there won't be that kind of an impact. One of the things that this does, because it's the first major uh, media vehicle for magic that's ever existed, um, outside of a long-running series of novels that was kind of on the periphery of the culture, um, that was eventually given up, recently rebooted, not terribly well received. There's been some comics along the way too, I guess, um, but definitely the first, you know long-form video-based presentation of the brand in the form of a series that is going to be run on Netflix, I'm assuming, sometime in the next couple of years. Um, What it has the potential to do is connect people emotionally to key characters in a way that they may not have been before, if they are well-written and or well-acted. And that could bring people more to the Vortho side of the culture and get them building theme decks and buying things they might not otherwise have done because they now feel more connected to that angle of the brand. Sure. I won't disagree with that, right? I, I, I totally believe you. Somebody could watch this, decide that Chandra is their spirit animal, and then feel the need to go buy original art Chandra that they never would have before. But like sure. in the sea of magic products... Right. Like your average FM player is not, this isn't going to increase the amount of money they spend by more than 2% a year. Right. Yeah. Is that, if, do you disagree with that? Like, can, is, is 2% too little, you think, for the average invested magic player? No, not for average, because I think there's, there are people that are Vorthos resistant um, that may never, no matter how many like movies and video games and uh, Netflix shows you put out it wouldn't much impact their buying behavior. Okay. So we've got, we've got a, we've got a rough, a rough agreement on predicate one. So predicate two, if you're not really targeting, if you're not going to impact the purchasing decisions much of the invested player, that means you have 
two general demographics you're going after. You're going after the lapsed player. This is a guy who played in elementary school or even a couple of years ago. Maybe they picked up duels of the Planeswalkers and played for a little while and have kind of gotten away from it. Uh, people who have been in Magic before, but are not haven't been playing for probably at least a year or two and it could be 20 years. Um, or brand new players, people who have never played Magic before in their life. Like those are the two general groups that this is going to target. You agree with that? Boy, this is, this is going to go a lot longer. I'm thinking the various elements of that of that discussion point through. Okay. So I, I think that when you do something like this, you are attempting to cast a net wider than your pre-existing audience. So I right. don't think that I don't think that this is written for magic players alone, though it certainly will have many fan service elements built into it, I'm sure. This is the kind of thing you do when you are trying to cast a wider funnel to invite people into your game. Right, which I completely agree with. And like I said, the people are targeting are partially the lapsed player, but more dominantly the brand new player, someone who's never played Magic before. That is by and far much like a humongous percentage of people watching this, I think, are probably going to be people who've never played Magic. In many ways, this is an attempt to bridge the gap of the Venn diagrams in nerd culture that we are pretty focused on at Shelf Life. The concept that we always took to investors with that project was that there is a growing tightness in the overlapping um, circles for nerds, jocks, and gamers, where kind of Western popular culture is a mashup of all of those, uh, you know, previously fairly separate uh, cultural spheres. And now you've got, you know, jocks going to see every Avengers movie. You've got nerds playing all sorts of sports and tons of crossover. And, and those are really simplistic discussion points. You know, to say them aloud seems too simplistic. There is mm-hmm. there is tremendous amounts of variation and uh, gradation in the demographics for those various major cultural touchstones. And something like a magic cartoon for some people, will just be a, a cool cartoon they might watch on Netflix. Uh, it may bring bridge the gap for some younger players from something like Pokemon into Magic. It may, as you mentioned, lapse players. It may remind some people that that game they used to play in high school or university or at some point in their 20s still exists and must be doing well because, look, they have a Netflix show. Um, and then for some people, it is a brand exposure um milestone where they're going to make sure they see the magic brand enough and then if they happen to set foot in a walmart or an lgs and or a board game and beer kind of establishment as has become popular in recent years maybe they their eyes settle on the logo again and they decide to pick up their first packs yeah, and I, I think you're I think you're right on the money with all that. I think that that's a, a very good read of kind of who this is going to be hitting, all those types of people. So now that we have an idea of who this project product is a sort of going to be targeting, catered to, or who, who they're hoping to snare with this, essentially people who kind of who don't play Magic, basically. They want to get people into Magic. We can that, we, That's kind of like where we can start this thought. So think about the types of people that that is. These are going to be... Anywhere from the super duper ultra casual to players who pro- might have played some magic before but haven't in quite a few years. So, 
if I go through each of Sam's bullet points here, each of his four options, I can speak to them as they relate to those groups of players. So his first one is reserve list and power cards. So do we think that these groups of players, if we flock to magic and let's say they increase magic's uh, bottom line, let's, let's say wizards decides that they increased uh, some metric related to an increase in players at like 20%, right? They get 20% more players this year. The DCI, you know, ratings year over year increased by 20%, something roughly that size, which would be a humongous get, right? Like that would be a massive amount of new players. Do we think reserve lists and power cards are going to move based on that lump of players? Well, we know these are really casual players, people who either never played before, barely have, or might've played in the past. I don't see any of these people save for the ultra rare going for reserve list or power, right? Like, like these are people who, for whom the moxes and black Lotus mean nothing or don't mean anything. And they're not really into magic yet. This is sort of a gateway. So they're not really going to be buying those cards, right? Are you, are you in agreement on that? Yeah. I think where the impact is felt with the reserve list and with power nine is that, you know, what that, segment of mtg finance has been experiencing in the last few years was um a relative period of calm and then there was the uh, bitcoin explosion uh with a lot of uh cryptocurrency uh nouveau riche and cryptocurrency farmers looking to go liquid into untraceable collectibles we saw a lot of reserve list stuff get pushed up Mm-hmm. And that continue, and what happens with Bitcoin this year, which is now again moving upward, um, is probably much more important than the announcement of a cartoon. However, what I will say is that the kinds of people that have the disposable income to purchase for personal use or invest in five, ten thousand, hundred thousand dollar magic cards will feel more comfortable and more confident in those decisions if they see a bunch of um, things happening with the brand that suggests the game is healthy because while the new players that might get brought in by things like arena and the cartoon are not immediately going to turn their sights on $10,000 magic cards, the people that have been around for 20 or 25 years are in peak earning years and are considering those purchases are certainly paying attention to the signals. And if all, you know, if the brand seems to be firing on all cylinders are that much more likely to invest on the basis that their investment will pay off in a few years. Not from those new players necessarily, but from the people that were new from, you know, five years ago, transitioning into having some disposable income and starting to consider those things to be goals. Well, that's all that's all really fair. And I think that's that's a valid read of the situation. But when you can contrast, you know, look out five years from now where this this TV show exists, contrast that with an alternate universe where they never make it. I have to imagine most of the players who are in those prime, the exact player you just described, the one who who wants to buy power and sell it to people 10 years later, whatever. Most of that activity, I feel like, would probably occur independent of the show. Even without the show, most of that would still occur. Absolutely. I mean, just my top level read on the show is that it's a great positive thing for the brand, especially if it turns out well. If it's at least as good as, say, the Castlevania uh, animation that's on Netflix, then. It's, it's a net positive for the brand. Even if it's bad, like, or just mediocre, which is, you know, likely, d- 
despite the good names that are attached to it. The a mediocre version of a magic show will still be good for the brand. Um, a yeah. really, really terrible one, like if it was almost meme-worthy, might actually still be good for the brand. <laughs> if if there are, um, and especially if they don't give up. If if they if it, if this is only the first of multiple media properties, all of that will reinforce the brand over time. Yeah. Um, the if it was if it never launches or is utterly forgettable and makes no splash whatsoever, and all of us watch it for ten minutes, give up on it, and then no one ever talks about it again, then that's probably the worst case scenario. Um, but along the way, the brand gets a bunch of, even in the build up to that, the brand gets a bunch of like broad gaming industry articles written about this, entertainment industry articles written about the brand that pushes it more and more into the mainstream. And I think <laughs> you, that's what this is really all about. You know, it's funny. Oh, we could take a quick diversion here that when, as you say that, and it gets me thinking that it's possible that the best bang for Wizards Bucks would be to get Netflix and the Russo brothers to agree to talk about this project and pretend it's going to happen with no intention of ever following through. And then you get, you know, you get, they get to spend a year talking about being in talks to build it and names that are going to be attached and people they're talking about voicing the, the, the characters and, and script ideas and what, what planeswalkers will be involved. And they get all these free articles written about them and people are thinking about magic and being excited. And then a year later, they say, uh, due to creative differences, we're pulling the project and we're going to wait and table until we find something better. And everyone's disappointed because they were looking forward to it. And the cost of all of that to wizards would be so low compared to actually just making <laughs> the product, but you'd still get all of the positive press without any of the danger of releasing a crummy show. Well, I mean, it would be hard to dodge to do all of that. First of all, with the names that are associated, people that were producers on the Avengers are not going to dick around like that. But and, and neither true. is Hasbro either. I mean, it's it's a funny concept, but that's not the way it all works. Isn't that they, a their movie about that? Wag the dog or something like that, where they fake a war or something? I'm sure. Um, I mean, I can think of a bunch of different movies where similar premise uh, that involve a similar premise. The I think that and the producers. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. A, a lot of the reserve list action is going to happen anyway. Um, but, and and I also, my top line on this, again, is that I don't think the cartoon is that big a deal one way or the other. Like, people that are talking about this being a major drain on magic revenues or something, like this is coming out of Hasbro, I mean, uh, Watsy's pocket, don't yeah. understand how the whole thing is structured. Like, uh, even if silly. this is happening through the Hasbro Studios superstructure that they created a while back, um, which I understood had been mostly collapsed, then, you know, that is still nothing to do with the day-to-day -day budget at Wizards of the Coast. This is a Hasbro studio project where they are licensing and or co-financing something, but Netflix is gonna, is, it has already agreed to buy the show and has announced it, so a lot of that's already kind of covered, you know what I'm saying? Like, the the... the it's bad for Netflix to have to pay a lot of money for shows. <laughs> on yeah. a regular basis but it's not bad for the people that are selling them to them because they have a fairly well understood model that if you're selling into it you can have you have a fairly reasonable expectation of what's going to happen and how much money you're getting and that deal has probably already been inked so people that are, that think that somehow this is going to like further endanger gp coverage or something don't really understand what they're talking right about. i i i i like didn't even really give that any lip service on twitter because it's like you you just you just don't know like you're just you don't understand fundamentally what's happening here and i'm not gonna argue with you sure um, so let's I, let's skip to the third and fourth bullets here well, uh, and, get, and circle back to the correct answer 
okay, okay, okay. So you, you, okay, so art, original magic art, right? Uh, it, it, this is simple. Why would any of these new players care about original art? Like that is purely a a nostalgia or a, a an emotional connection to an existing card that you want to invest in because basically it means something to you. With the with the occasional person who's like an art knowledgeable art collector who just sees value, but these new players are not going to be those people, right? Again, brand new players have never really played Magic, have no connections, you know, aren't suddenly getting into this with the intention of spending you know twenty to one hundred thousand dollars on stuff. So this seems like a total whiff to me, right? I think the argument you're making if you selected if the 12% of people so far that have selected original magic art is a long-term brand expansion argument where you're suggesting that there's going to be some kind of um, magic cinematic universe. The mm-hmm. event, you know, the, the, the Marvel model that every studio on the planet wants to emulate at this point. You're not just going to have one magic show. You're going to have a whole series of media properties, shows and movies, live action and cartoon. You're going to do it on all the different platforms and it's going to go on for years. In that scenario, then some key original magic art could well appreciate very well during that period. But I really don't think it's ever going to hold a candle to the kind of returns that you can generate inside MTG Finance just because of the nature of that business. Um, When art goes up on eBay and you, you know, there's been some very uh, impressive uh, original pieces sold for very recent cards. We're not talking about Black Lotus art. We're talking about art from recent sets. Like, uh, I think it was the Nickel Bolas God Pharaoh and what was the other one? Uh, Was it the Ugin? I think we're both up right after Mythic Edition 3 was announced. I think they both landed over 15,000, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but the problem is if you invest the 15,000 into that, can you get 30 next year? No. Okay. Well then you should probably should have put it into the second option that we're going to circle back to. Okay. So we're, we're in agreement that like magic art is generally, is going to do what magic art is going to do. And the influx of players, at least in a very, in a short term, even medium term, probably not going to matter and really only seeks to explode. If this becomes like a global, like twilight Avengers, Marvel type media product, which we're kind of assuming is not on the table here. I think that original magic art gets the benefit from this in the same way that the reserve list does, which is already yeah. collecting which both of which are just reflections of how well the brand is doing overall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now the next step is Hasbro stock. And I saw you comment on this and I think you were pretty much on the money. So I'll let you make yeah, this my, my response was anyone voting stock doesn't understand the big picture on Hasbro and the percentage contribution to the bottom line that MTG actually represents. Like I think Hasbro, if I'm not mistaken, is something like a four to $5 billion revenue company and magic is something like 10% of total revenues. Um, and if has, and if the Hasbro number is bigger than, a, then it's even smaller. And the material impact on a magic bottom line from a cartoon, I would guess is less than two or 3%. And that's just for the brand, not for Hasbro. So from yeah. Hasbro's perspective, this is just a successful, potentially successful project that contributes to the long-term brand equity of magic. But yeah, it's, like not a, gonna, it's not going to move the needle in a meaningful way. Uh, uh, yeah, for as much equity as the Netflix show generates, a strong breeze could influence Hasbro's bottom line just that much in the other direction. Right? Yeah, so like Has- Hasbro is, a, is $5.2 billion as of 2017, probably pretty similar in the, in the 5 to 6 range right now. 
Yeah. So if Magic is now up to say something like six hundred million a year, like ten percent of total Hasbro revenue. Um, so a great project inside Magic would be something like War of the Spark. That's going to be much more of a revenue generator than a cartoon. A cartoon is a thing that that contributes in intangible ways to the brand over a long period of time, um, as people experience that and are brought closer to your brand. Not the same thing as having a fantastic project, where you, a product that you knock out of the park and sell 20% more of than you were expecting. Yeah, yeah. So so essentially, the scale here is just it's gonna it could feel like a big deal to you and I and to everyone listening to this cast. But at the Hasbro level, it's it's not going to swing the needle hard enough. Now, again, yeah, and so seven years, instance, seven years later, if they built a media empire out of this somehow, and it's become huge. It's another story. Different. But but that's not what we're looking at. Well, <laughs> like, we can't assume that's going to happen. The, the, the end game there, uh, <laughs> pun intended, pun intended, would be that, you know, if you build any brand up to that level these days, then you become a target for Disney, um, mm. as we've already seen. I mean, in the last 10 years, Disney, or I guess 15 years, Disney swallowed Star Wars and Marvel, the two biggest and most important properties, because they saw that the brands that they started and the characters that they created like almost 100 years ago now you know, your Donalds and your Mickeys and whatever, were not going to be the future. That that wasn't going to be what people were going to be in touch with uh, universally. And they recognized that they needed to acquire outside culture to reinvigorate um, their holdings, which was one of, you know, some of the most astute business uh, decision-making in the 21st century. So, you know, that's, that's your ultimate... <laughs> The only way I could ever see magic being picked up would be if it got to that level. And I think they're way, they are many, many years away from that being the case, at least five to 10. And that would be if everything was going gangbusters. And I don't think that's where we're headed. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's much more likely that it ends up uh, similar to how Hasbro handles Transformers. Transformers gets uh, a movie every few years or so. That's going to keep going for a while. They get a cartoon every couple of years or so. They make kind of mix and match various elements in that, and they use it to sell a bunch of toys. Um, and Hasbro understands that process well, and it's kind of surprising in the grand scheme of things. Like I, the most interesting thing about this cartoon is how long it took to ever exist. In, if Magic had been a thing in the early '80s, a, a Magic cartoon would have been part of the initial launch, because back then that was how things got done. Everything from you know the cultural legacy of things like Transformers, GI Joe, He Man, Shira. Care Bears, et cetera, et cetera, these brands that still exist today is because they had cartoons on Saturday morning and everybody watched them. Mm-hmm. So the the fact that we have a 25-year success story with relatively vibrant characters and, you know, the potential for a good cartoon, and but we've never had one. I mean, that's that's the most interesting part to me. Yeah. It, that does seem like a, a missed opportunity, but, yeah, I mean, that's water under the bridge at this point. And um, as a frame of reference... Uh, you know, you talk about building to this major media property. Um, so, and we, we're talking about Avengers, right? Like that's kind of the 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 big well, one the in Mar- the room that everyone references. Yeah, the, but the Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah, yeah, which yeah, the, has recently focused on Avengers, right? So, if you trace the roots of that back, it's the X Men film from the in the year two thousand. I feel like that really is what kicked off. To me, that is the the line that says, okay, this is where all of this started. Now, that was not part of the MCU, but it opened the door to it. And it was like the first modern major like comic book series that did really well. 
and kind of opened the door for everything. And that remember, that was 19 years ago. So uh, like you ha- – it took 19 – nearly two decades from the first like major blockbuster superhero movie to Endgame. Um, so you know if you're thinking magic is going to become this major media property, yeah, it's a long road. Your, your kids are going to be going to see the, the capstone film of the Weatherlight saga, right? Like not – you know, you're going to be taking them and their friends. So – we don't we don't like Hasbro stock either. So let's go to the last bullet point here, and I think there's going to be some some chatter. Well, I mean, whether uh, let me refine that whether or not you like Hasbro stock isn't going to hinge on this. Like Hasbro stock has a whole many. We could do a whole show just talking about whether Hasbro stock is a good buy or not. But this isn't enough of an impact to matter one way or the other. Is, is yeah. the core point? Yes, agree, agree. So yeah, yeah. Whether and that, it's the same for all three of these, like Reserveless and Power, Original Magic Art, and Hasbro Stock. If you liked them, you can still like them, but the the news of this doesn't change any of that really. Um. So modern EDH cards. So this is, I think, what you told Sam you liked, right? Yeah, and forty three percent of people agree. So I mean, the majority of of people that have answered out of almost eighteen hundred respondents so far are on the same wavelength. So here's my position. This is also the wrong answer. And the correct answer is none of the options. My position here is there is not a single thing that you can buy that makes more sense than any other investment decision. Uh, Expecting if you expect a player, the player growth, there is no right choice. Everything else is everything is just as good as it was before. One of the reasons that that's true is that the cycle we're currently on with how well Magic is doing is, you know, MTG Finance has gone from two, three, four-year holds to one, two-year holds to six-month holds to a lot of the stuff in the first half of this year being three-month holds or less. Mm -hmm. Um, The game being in good shape for standard modern and commander um three great formats all at the same time most of the you know baggage of trying to keep legacy and vintage players happy having now fallen by the wayside everyone kind of accepting that we don't build the game for them anymore um and arena not being a perfect entity but being relatively successful and, you know, despite re- some scandals along the way and Mythic Edition 3, them faking ad uh, view- viewership on Twitch along with everybody else in the industry, um, you know, in all of that taken into consideration, stuff's moving too fast. So if this cartoon is coming out in a year or two years, you know, at that moment of release, there might be a discussion Like we might be doing a different show where we're discussing what in that specifically impacts when we know what characters are involved. So if, if they say that the whole show is, is centered around Chandra, then you might want to look at some Chandra foils, potentially. Um, if they set up a set or a product that they release alongside this that uh, is meant to harness your newfound love for these characters then we'll end up having discussion about it. But in the meantime, there there are many, many cycles of investment and reinvestment between now and that date. And that's part a big part of why you're right. None of these things moving way too quickly for any of this to matter right now. And 
so I I'm I agree with you and pretty much all that. I think I, I don't I didn't hear anything that jumped out at me that I disagreed with. And you know I understand that. First of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, the the correct answer is ignore the Netflix show and keep flipping cards on 90 day cycles. Uh, the second the second level to that is not everyone wants to do that, which I totally get. Sam specifically says he's not a finance guy; he doesn't want to do that. That's fine. Totally welcome to. He wants a much slower burn, something he doesn't have to worry about. I totally respect that. Um, but I still think all those all those choices are wrong, even under that that investment principle. And let me can I can I take two seconds to kind of run through my my thought process here? Go for it. Okay, so. You've got all these players, like I said, who are either never never played or just starting, uh, or, or, or lapsed players, but I haven't been in the game for a while. So, first of all, the so where where is Wizards going to try and drive these players? Where do they want if they if they if their goal is a pipeline to seeing the show to playing Magic? Where do you think they're going to put them? They're not sending them to the local store. They're sending them to Arena. You're kidding yourself if you think that's going to be anything else, right? They are going to be arena ads plastered all over that. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that, like, it's not actually a magic, it's not a set in the magic universe, but like, it's the show is somehow like a hybrid between people in the real world, like, interacting with the magic universe somehow. And like, there's characters on the show playing arena. And it's just one gigantic arena ad, basically. Um, but even if they don't go that route, uh, there, there's going to be commercials for arena bookending. It's going to be all over the place. That's going to be their goal because you're sitting at home watching on Netflix. You, it's hard for you to just get up, get in your car and drive to the card store. You might not know which where it is in your town. They might not have a web presence. There might not even be one. But you can download Arena right now. So that's going to be the main place to drive people. And that's meaningless to us, right? It's people who want to make money based on this new influx of players that we can't capture anything out of Arena. That doesn't help us. Even those players who do decide to make the jump to paper, uh, keep in mind that we've all become very used to, and I, I can feel like I can use the word inured here to magic prices. Um, you know, we look at a card and go, okay, well, you know, Urza's pre-ordering for sixty bucks, which is kind of pricey, but I really only need one. Like, I guess I can, I'll, I'll snip one off for forty-five if I can, fifty bucks from a friend, uh, and that'll be fine for now. And oh, and this, you know, this foil, um, this foil paradox engine's one hundred and eighty, but you know, I'll, I know I'll use it elsewhere. And like, you can spend three hundred dollars on magic cards in minutes and you can just kind of rationalize it all to yourself anyone who's like new to magic or like probably less of the returning players because they know what this demon is but especially the new players um are going to mouth agape at those prices right like it's not it's going to sound like another universe i'm sorry you what there's there's two more zeros on that than i expected to these are people who would walk into a store pick up the pre-cons whichever pre-con it is and see a 30 dollar price tag and go eh I don't know, $30 is probably fine, right? Like that's enough of a number for people who aren't used to these prices to kind of balk, to, they can deal with $30, but beyond that, they're going to balk at that because they they don't understand, unreasonably so, they don't understand this this market and this model that exists behind it. So that seems like a lot. Um, now, now you can talk about how there's other products that have higher entry points, blah, blah, blah. And I don't disagree with that, but like you can't expect people to dump a ton of money into it, um, especially when you have, all the digital properties are free to play. You know, Arena, you can walk into, I'm pretty sure you can play Arena for free, but if it's not, it's pretty cheap entry. Um, other digital forms of entertainment, like are free, like whether you're playing League or, or Apex or whatever, they all are essentially free to play. Um, and even if they're not free to play, they're not that expensive. So the, the, the cost barrier is going to be big for players. 
Um, so when you look at any of these other formats, anything beyond standard, modern, and EDH, the cost barrier is humongous for these people. Um, they barely can afford to buy, they're, they're barely going to be willing to buy a commander deck, uh, a pre-con commander deck at 30 bucks. And the other half of that coin is the complexity barrier because EDH is basically the most complex format in Magic. Um, it's, you have to have uh, a really encyclopedic knowledge of rules to be able to comfortably play that game, uh, to play that format. And I even have friends who've been playing Magic for four or five years who will sit down and play EDH and make mistakes left and right and screw stuff up. And even those of us that have been playing for 20 years will occasionally have to pause and have rules discussions. And I mean, really, if you don't have a rules discussion at some point, every EDH game you play, like chances are you're all just making, getting the same rule wrong and not realizing it. Like most of the time there, you know, something would come up that would be a wrinkle that would make you guys talk about at least one person in your group's not going to get it. There is no way that format is accessible for brand new players. Modern is the same problem. It's essentially, it's not quite as complex, but it's way more cutthroat. It's way more competitive. It's going to be hard to get into that. Um, And again, as a new player, like that's not where you're going to start. Those are eventually where you'll find yourself most likely as a casual player, but like EDH especially, but it's just not where you're going to, you're going to begin. Um, standard, maybe they might get in the standard. Uh, but again, these aren't going to be people looking for foils. They don't care about, you know, promo risk studies. They don't care about, uh, judge cradles or any of this stuff. If there's anything, you, any paper card you can sell to these players, anything, it's going to be for their 60 card casual decks, right? That's most likely, I think, the, the, between limited and maybe some standard, but I think just kitchen ca- table magic is where most of these players are going to play their games. Um, just like all, most of us did, right? Like that's where most of us started. We got into magic. That's where we played. We played with our group of friends. Maybe I'm watching the Netflix show and I tell my friend it's good and he watches it and a couple of us watch and we all decide we're going to go out and buy some pre-con, pre-cons and play magic together. And uh, we pick them up and we start playing that way and we end up building these just 60 card casual decks, whatever you want. Uh, the people who are going to be selling paper cards to those players aren't you aren't James and I and they're not you listening to this podcast they're vendors who are going to be selling them soul rings at three bucks maybe and bulk rares at 25 cents or 75 cents that go cool in their beast deck um that's the type of product that's going to move to these players because they just aren't you aren't going to be prepared yet they're not going to be at the emotional level required to dump that much money into it so I I know everyone's answering modern and EDH because those are the like EDH especially is like the casual format, but I think that's the wrong casual. Like this is not they're not that level. Well, they're it, it it doorway. To to be clear, out of the four, I fully agree that out of the four options, that's the best option. But again, for for two big reasons, none of the above. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Just, you, you've just, what you've just gone through is the time lapse issue, which is that a, a brand new player encountering the game take some time to get up to speed to where they're spending serious money and investing in formats wholeheartedly. Um, And a lot of them fall out of the game along the way. A lot of people try things for a little while and then give up. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's the time-lapse factor. And the other factor that we were talking about earlier is there, you know, launching this cartoon, even if it was launching tomorrow is akin to lighting a match in a room that's on fire. The, the brand is already killing it. And this is just one more element that helps it succeed. But it's not going to, you know, if it, if it was a Friday night NBC show or something 15 years ago, then, and it had major actors behind it, Brad Pitt was going to play Jace or something, then, or it was a major <laughs> motion picture with that, that had been announced, not a Netflix cartoon, 
and it was you know major players that were involved like you know tom cruise. the russo brothers <laughs> tom cruise tom cruise is going to play dak faden or something um and the russo brothers are still attached then then you again you're talking about a different level of impact but again you're waiting for that to come out before it really matters one of the things that we've seen say in the comics industry is that every time marvel announces a new film there is definitely a run-up on the original uh versions of like first appearances or keys as they're called um of various old books will in fact see major uh, gains a lot of that comes from the pre-existing audience it's not the person that goes to see whatever daredevil on netflix for the first time that suddenly runs out and buys a ten thousand dollar daredevil book it's the guy who's been reading daredevil since he was a kid and is super stoked to finally have his character brought to life in a way that he believes does it justice or doesn't Mm -hmm. and then runs out and buys that book so i i think we've already hammered hammered on the nail till it's deep into the wood the it's good that there is a magic cartoon i hope it's great even if it's only mediocre it will be a net positive for the brand and in the meantime, we got plenty of flipping to do. Yeah, I I, I agree. It's it's um it, it's good that the show's out there. It's going to be good for magic. It's going to be good for the existing magic players, and that's all great. Uh, it's going to be anime, which is awful, and I hate it. But like that's what it is. And and I like all of this. And I just wanted to to get this out there that like yes, the show's going to be out there. Yes, more people will play magic because of it. And uh, unfortunately, no, there's virtually no way for you to capitalize on that right now. So just stick with what you're doing and don't worry about that. Because if you try and chase profits based on all those new players due to arena, due to complexity, due to cost, you're just not going to see the any gains. Like really just do anything else and it'll be better. Now there is, there is one caveat. Okay. Lots of people are not going to listen to this discussion or have this discussion with the level of comprehension of the situation that we brought to the table. <laughs> Well, and so it's possible that uh, conversations that are less on the money will lead to people making decisions that are, generally speaking, foolish. 42 people could decide on the basis of this news to run out and buy Black Lotuses thinking that they're going to that having ignored every good reason before, suddenly that's the thing that tips them over and makes them buy something they wouldn't have otherwise. Well, could, and that's the and, and that, if enough and if enough people reacted in that way, then you could have a material impact on the market. But I don't see that happening. Yeah, that's that's the second level, right? And we see that happen. Uh, so apparently, extra planar lands was because they talked about it on some command cast. It wasn't the snow lands, but that was a that would be that would be one to reference. Um, uh, where essentially the the reality of the situation is a card's not going to be good, but enough people think it's going to be good that the price rises and that you made money. Like you specced on it and you made money because you were selling to people that were a little bit dumber than you are. So I'm not going to say that that's not going to happen here. There could be a run on stuff like that. Uh, but I feel like trying to chase that is a really bad idea because now you're trying to predict the behavior of people who know – who really are essentially acting illogically because they're buying these cards. Uh, so you're trying to figure out what they're going to do and then buy this, buy what they want before they buy it to sell it to them. Oh God, no, just stay away like that. And there will be price movements based on all of this, but they're absolutely not worth chasing and you will not be able to guess them early enough. 
and most of the impact is going to be mixed in with everything else that's going on. I mean, we've right. It, if you don't let this be the thing that makes you jump out and do something weird, because if you didn't react to arena news, arena launch, arena doing reasonably well, you know, the complete reconfiguration of the pro system, the multiple excellent sets in the last six months, etc. You know, those were all catalysts for gains in MTG finance as well. And if you didn't react to any of those, but suddenly you're jumping on some kind of bandwagon based on the cartoon, then you really just need to take a big step back, put your wallet away and do some research <laughs> yeah. because you're just, you're clearly out of touch with MTG finance, which is one of the reasons that I keep fighting for it uh, to keep that, to try to unsully um, that hashtag with sim- basic straightforward information um, yeah. because how little people understand about the economics of this game is a big reason why they continually allow themselves to be taken advantage of by the superstructure of the game, by the underlying economic dynamics, and not by some rando MTG finance guy that sells them a card $5 less than TCG player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's certain cards will, there will be some movements based on all of this news, but or, or should I say, let me rephrase it. There will be a couple cards that will move based on the news, but it's not worth trying to chase. And there will also be price movements that happen independent of this news, but will be occur in such a timeline that people will mistake them for having been involved with this news when really it was just the card was going to increase in price anyways. It was just at the right place at the right time and it and coincided with the announcement of the show or with the release of the show or whatever. Um and and you know to your broader point that's I that's also correct as you know there's a lot of misinformation and misplaced uh, animosity but um, that's a boy that's a I, whole other show right there yeah I mean in summary <laughs> you know whatever you were doing before just carry on doing it because this is cool but it's not going to have a major material impact anytime soon uh, agreed all right so that's a wrap for this week folks where can people find you online Travis. Uh, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I write every Monday at MTG Price doing the uh, Watchtower series. How about yourself? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. I'm also usually haunting the MTG Price Pro Trader Discord, uh, hanging out with a few hundred of our dearest friends. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service at your earliest convenience. For just $7.99 a month or $79.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. I got the pricing wrong for the first time because we just switched it. If you are listening to this cast and you want to lock in the old pricing of $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, well, specifically the, the annual fee, really, um, do go ahead and hit us up in the next week or two and because that will be last call and then we will be on to bigger and better things. All right. Uh, who wins our credit this week? Uh, our credit winner this week is Briggles hanging out in the MTG Price Pro Trader Discord. You have won a $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc. Go forth and spend madly so that we get those in the future.
Congratulations, Briggles. Your name disgusts me. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this year's podcast. Brings us to the end of episode 172. Uh, I thought this was a great discussion this week. Really got our teeth into Modern Horizons and what you'll be able to expect out of that. And I'm looking forward to doing it again next week. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.